continue our worship by reading the scripture passage for this morning. It is found in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And we will read the whole chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and shew unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie, and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Congregation, so far the reading of God's word. Let us now come before... Dear congregation, what must a Christian do with his remaining sin? As much as we wouldn't like to recognize this, the scriptures are clear that in us believers there remains sin, indwells sin. And also regardless of how clear the answer to this question should be for a believer, it is important for us to remember in this morning what must a Christian do with his sin. His remaining sin. Well, among the different answers that scriptures provide to us, certainly the Christian must not call sin good. Isaiah 5.20 The Christian must not have fellowship with it, but rather reprove it when it is committed by others. Ephesians 5.11 The Christian must not let sin reign in his body, Romans 6.12. The Christian must not practice sin, 1 John 3.8-10. And the Christian finally must, through the Spirit, mortify his sin, Romans 8.13. But between the recognition of sin as something evil and an active practice of mortification of sin... There are other truths that the Christian needs to recognize regarding sin. There are certain truths 
that need to be admitted by a child of God before a real process of mortification is undertaken in a believer's soul. According to our text, the Christian must recognize two truths concerning his remaining sin. First, that sin remains indwelling in him. That needs to be clear. And secondly, that he still, as much as he doesn't want to, he still commits sin. Recognizing these truths, however, does not represent all that a Christian must do concerning his sin prior to mortification. The Christian must not only recognize his sin, the Christian must confess his sin. Therefore, dear brother and sister, what our text proposes to you in this morning is the following. Do not deny that sin still dwells in you, nor that you still commit it. Instead, let God's faithfulness and righteousness give you confidence to confess your sins to Him and to trust that God will indeed forgive your sins, but also He will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. The title of this sermon is Christian. What must you do with your sin? In order to address our theme, we will have two main points which represent the answer to our title's question. First of all, the Christian must recognize it. You must acknowledge and recognize your sin. And second of all, you must confess it. You must go before the Lord in confession. Let's begin by taking a look to our text through the lens of recognizing our sins. We can see this in verses 8 and 10. Before seeing in our text that a Christian is to recognize his sin, we need to understand the context and the occasion of the writing of 1 John. Only then we will understand why it is appropriate for a Christian to recognize his sin. First, John is a letter whose purpose is to promote assurance of faith. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. According to this verse, John writes to those who believe, that they may know that they have eternal life in believing in the name of the Son of God. And if there are unbelievers among his audience, then he also writes so that they may exercise their faith in believing in the name of the Son of God. But how did John know who or who was not a believer? How did John know in what hearts to impress assurance and in what hearts to impress an exhortation to believe by the first time? The answer is through examination. First John is full of what theologians call marks of grace or tests for assurance. Because of an exodus of false converts within the audience of John, John then puts his audience's faith to the test in order to see 
who were from us and who were not from us. Chapter 2, verse 19 from 1 John says, They went out from us, they w but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not doubt how continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifested, that they were not all of us. In chapter 1, John already uses a great variety of these marks of grace. These marks aim to distinguish between true Christianity and agnosticism. I'm sorry. This was the heresy that John was trying to reject in his day. Verses 1 to 4 in chapter 1 say that true Christianity, according to John, affirms that it is only the apostolic message about Christ's incarnation commissioned by Jesus himself what brings sinners into fellowship with God, with his Christ, and with his church. The agnostic message of Christ without humanity, they affirm that Christ did not take a human form because for them everything that is material is evil. So they preached a Christ without a body, a physical body. This message cannot effect reconciliation between God and sinners. Therefore, if a, members, if a member of John's audience affirmed that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh, then that person was not of God. Actually, that was a person under the operation of the spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 2.19. In verses 5 to 7 of this same chapter 1, the beloved apostle put his audience's fellowship with God to the test by their walking. Since the foolish ideas of Gnosticism attribu attributed evil to the creator of the world, then having fellowship with the creator of the world did not mean for them to walk in holiness since their creator as such was evil. On the contrary, since the God of scriptures is light and in him is no darkness at all. True Christianity says that having fellowship with God requires from his children that they also walk in the light. As the saying goes, a Christian is known not by his talk, but by his walk. In verses 8 to 10 of chapter 1, we see that John wants to examine uh, whether a person has the truth in him or not, or whether the word of God is in him or not, as we see at the end of verses 8 and 10. And then the beloved apostle does so by hearing what the person says about sin. By listening to what his audiences said, affirmed, or did not affirm about sin, then John would be able to recognize whether they were believers or not. Gnosticism was very spec speculative in moral aspects, but true Christianity is, is based on a very clear moral standard. We just read it some minutes ago. The law of God, which is an expression of God's own character, the standard is the truth, and God's word is 
the truth. So as John 3.33 says, He that hath received Jesus, testimony has said to his seal that God is true. And as you see at the end of verse 10, denying the commission of sin is making God a liar. Why? Because God testifies in his word time after time that we are sinners, that we are fallen creatures, that sin dwells in us, but also that we commit it. So if you deny this, you're making God a liar. Dear children and young people, it is common for us to put valuable things to the test, isn't it? We do so because we want to know that indeed we are in possession of valuable things. When you do transactions and the amounts of money are big, you want to test this because you want to make sure that in fact you are indeed in possession of a real and valuable thing. Something similar happens to the golden rings. Many people could say that they possess genuine golden rings and the rings might have a golden color. But the fact that a ring is golden, it doesn't mean that it is made of real gold. And there are different tests through which people can really verify if this ring is of genuine gold. For example, the magnifying glass test. With this method, elements made of gold are carefully inspected with a magnifying glass in order to find special little marks impressed by the manufacturer. If a good manufacturer puts his seal on a golden ring, then there is a high percentage that this is genuine gold. In the same way, what John is trying to do with his first epistle is searching those marks of grace that God has impressed upon the souls of his audience. Because these marks are marks that only the Holy Spirit can work and can impress in the soul of a person. Those marks would tell whether a person is a believer or not. And dear congregation, if we test earthly things, then how much more we need to test if our souls are really in possession of saving faith, which ultimately speaking has an eternal value. Shall we not put our souls to the test through God's word in order to trace the loving and saving work carried out by the Spirit of God? In our particular text, then, as we just said, a mark impressed upon those in whose souls the word of God abides is the recognition of their own sinfulness. But then a question arises. How specifically must a Christian recognize his sin? How is it done? Well, the text is clear in this, and the text actually helps us a lot. You need to recognize that sin indwells in you and that you still commit it. Verse 8 begins by saying, if we say that we have no sin. Often the verbs that accompany the word sin are to commit to practice, 
to fall into sin. But it is weird for us to find the word to have sin. What is the meaning of having sin? Well, the answer is found in what theologians call original sin. By original sin, we refer not only to the first transgression that Adam and Eve committed in the garden, but to the consequences that that commission brought for all of the descendants of Adam and Eve. By original sin, here in this context, we refer to defilement, the inherent corruption which we inherited from our parents and which extends over the whole man. Whoever calls himself a Christian and denies his corruption and sinfulness shows two things according to verse 8. First, that such person is self-deceiving. And secondly, that that person is not in possession of the truth. The Greek term behind deceive in verse 8 shows that a Christian who claims to be without sin is a Christian who leads himself astray from the truth. This happens because, again, the testimony of the truth and God's word is the truth is clear concerning both believers' sinfulness and unbelievers' sinfulness. Concerning the believers remaining sin, Paul says in Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Colossians 3, 5, Paul says to those who have been risen with Christ, Mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all asleep, but we shall all be changed. And then he continues to say, And the dead shall be raised incorruptible. If a Christian can attain a state of perfection here in this earth, why Paul continues to call the body of a Christian something corruptible. Why then do we have to wait until glorification in order to be truly and absolutely, absolutely free from sin? The, the answer is because sin obviously still dwells in us. But then we have to recognize as well sin's commission. Not only that it indwells in us, but that we also, as much as we don't want to, we commit sin. Verse 10 begins by saying, if we say that we have not sinned, the contrast between verses 8 and 10 is clear. According to verse 8, sin is something that you have. According to verse 10, sin is something that you have done or that you have Committed. As said before, original sin points to the sin that dwells in a person's soul, but the commission of sin, which is a, a word that the theologians used to describe, is actual sin, original sin, and actual sin. When we commit a sin and fall into an expression of actual sin, 
It means that we are transgressing one of God's commandment, as 1 John 3, 4 says. And it can be committed either through word, through thoughts, through deeds, and as James also points out, through omission. Now it is important that we understand the apostle's intent here. John's purpose in communicating that a Christian has sinned and has sinned is that he should not deceive himself nor make God a liar. Justifying sin in the believer, and please pay attention to this, is not something that John wants to do in order to encourage the believer to sin. No, that is not what John wants to do here. In chapter 2, verse 1, we find, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. So let us not take these truths as an occasion to fall. Rather, the believer should understand this in order to be able to deal with his sin more holistically. Let us take a look at our second point. What must a Christian do with his sin? Confess it. Between the two verses that focus on making the believer recognize his sinfulness and his commission of sin, there lies the blessed truth of God's forgiveness after confession. Think about a sea oyster. Verses 8 and 10 show the two shells of a sea oyster. And the shells of a sea oyster are dirty, are dark, are sandy, are ugly to the sight. However, in the midst of these two shells, there lies a beautiful pearl that shines by its great value and beauty. In a similar way, verse 9 of chapter 1, in the midst of these two recognitions of sin, is something that stands out for its beauty. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have sinned, but thanks be to God for the gift of confession. It is a pearl that illuminates, enriches, and renews the hope of forgiveness within the weary souls of believers who fight against their sin. Verse 9 must be understood as a conditional statement, but in this case, it has the force of a command. The believer is to, must confess his sins because forgiveness of sins and cleansing from wickedness will be granted after a genuine confession of sin. However, it is important to understand that this verse from the Greek expresses a logical sequence, in other words, and not a relationship of cause and consequence. Let me put this in more simple words. Forgiveness follows confession, but forgiveness is not granted on account of confession only. Forgiveness, as given in justification, is something that God gives by faith alone. We know that forgiveness of sins is granted to a person on the basis of justification 
by faith alone. And God grants justification when a person exercises saving faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the substitutionary life and death of Jesus is what we might call the cause that produces forgiveness. Justification happens after this once and for all. How is then confession related to forgiveness? The answer is repentance. Repentance. The exercise of saving faith must never be separated of repentance. We often are taught in our seminary that faith and repentance are the two sides of one single coin. Along with faith, you have repentance. And the side of the coin upon which you find repentance must have confession as its seal. Confession must be stamped upon the side of repentance of this glorious coin, so to say, reverently speaking. Verse 9 must be understood as a conditional statement again, but it has the force of a command. Remember, through faith and repentance, being confession, a, an element of repentance, you can use this beautiful pearl, you can manufacture this pearl, and you can wear it as a symbol of spiritual jewelry. Thus, faith and repentance, again, are two sides of one same coin. Justification gives way to the new birth. Justification declares a person a citizen of heavens once and for all. However, that born-again person can sin. Through his sin, he can both hurt his communion with God and with the people of God. But because that person has been already justified once and for all, then that person can be welcomed again into communion with God and His people after the exercise of confession and repentance. You see, repentance and confession of sins is not something you do only when you get saved. Pretty much the whole Christian life is a constant expression of faith, repentance, and confession. Let's take a look at three different practical aspects contained in our text. We must then recognize our sin and confess our sin. But let's take a look at three aspects of confession. In our passage, we can find the motive or the reason for confessing our sin. Dear hearer, the scope of this text is too broad. Confession is a theme that speaks both to believers and unbelievers. And most importantly, confession in this verse is driven by the character of God. Confession can be made because it is made before a God who is faithful and who is righteous. Confession by you, believer or unbeliever, is made on the basis of a trust in the faithfulness and righteousness of our God. Trust that if you confess your sin, 
He will be faithful to his word. He will deal faithfully and righteously with you. As a Scottish minister said, God is true, true to himself and true to us. You may well trust with him all the secrets of your soul. For well does he requite your trust. He is faithful, keeping covenant and mercy, never saying to the seed of Jacob, Seek ye my face in vain. He is just. He will not, in seeming pity, do you a real injustice. He will not heal your hurt slightly. He will not prophesy smooth things. He will set your iniquities before him, your secret sins, in the light of his countenance. He will keep you in his hand and under his hand until all partial dealing, all unrighteousness as to any of your sins is cleaned out of you. With the charm of true love, he will work truth and uprightness in you so that as to your whole walk, inner and outer alike, shall be clear light. Light clear as crystal between him and you. Some of you might receive cleansing for the first time. And our prayers is that it may happen. That any of you who haven't been cleansed from your unrighteousness may receive that cleansing today morning. And perhaps at this point you are already asking yourself, okay, I know God's truth speaks of my sinfulness, speaks of my commission of sin. I know that God is faithful and that God is just and that I can go to Him in confession. But how then? How then do I confess my sin? The act of confessing your sin. To know how to confess your sin, we must first define the term confess. The Greek word in our text refers to the idea of admitting or agreeing with the statement of another. To to confess here carries the idea of nodding one's head with the affirmation of another. It shows a mental and internal reality rather than an external or verbal one. Confession here means to embrace what the scriptures say about our sinfulness. We say with our heads and our hearts, it is true, it is true. I am a sinner before God. It is true. What the scriptures say is true. It is just like what happened in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. While the Pharisee confessed a list of self-righteous deeds, what did the publican do? Luke 18, Luke 18, 13. And the publican, standing afar off, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say after the publican's confession? Verse 14 of Luke 18. I tell you, this man went down to his house, to his house justified, rather 
than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. And we, however, find another biblical and perhaps more comprehensive expression of what a confession can look like. Do you remember David after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet and how he wrote Psalm 51? In Psalm 51, which is an inspired example or testimony of a real confession, we can see here very quickly 10 practical aspects of what a confession should contain or how you should confess your sin. Well, first of all, we need to frame Psalm 51 as New Testament believers by saying that any single confession uttered by a sinner before God needs to be done on the merits, the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, you must recognize that God is just. Verse 4 of Psalm 51. If you want, I would like to ask you to open your Bibles on Psalm 51 so that we may walk through this passage together. Psalm 51, verse 4. You must recognize that God is just. Through the confession of sin, God's truthfulness and justice is exalted. David said in verse 4, Psalm 51, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Thirdly, you must own your sin. Do not blame anyone else. It is incredible to see what is called or some branches of the so-called counseling or Christian counseling how everything is based on a shift of the blame, on a blame shifting. Yes, you have been hurt, but you're not guilty. Others are guilty of what you are doing, of what happened to you. We know that difficult things happen to us, and they can be made by others to us. But the true freedom does not begin when you forgive another. Rather, when you are forgiven by God. And... David is doing something that all of us should do. You need to own your own sin. Verses 3 and 4, David says, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. This is a very very important aspect. Do not blame someone else. Do not blame others. Go before the Lord and own your sin. Fourth aspect, you must confess your original sin. Sin dwells in all the chambers of your soul from your birth. Verse 5 of Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me. Fifthly, you must also confess your actual sin. In verse 14, David asked the Lord, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Here, perhaps, David did this in reference to what he did with Uriah. 
Blood guiltiness is a synonym of murder, and David committed one. He is confessing it right here. Number six, you must confess your sin with a longing for cleansing. Verses one and two, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Number 7, you must confess your desire for the indwelling of the Spirit to be restored upon your soul. Verse 11, David says, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We know that in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, every believer is sealed with the presence of the Holy Spirit. David is not saying that God can remove the Holy Spirit from his children, but he is speaking out of what he was experiencing in that moment. We know that every time we commit a sin, the Holy Spirit is grieved, is quenched. So you might experience as if the Holy Spirit has really left you. But if you are a true child of God, the Holy Spirit hasn't left His indwelling in you. But He might be quenched, grieved. And you might have to pray for His influence and His power to be restored in your Christian life. Number eight, you must confess your desire for growing in holiness. Verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Number 9, you must, confess, you must confess the desire for your joy to be restored. Verses 8 and 12, David says, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. When you sin, you lose your Christian joy. Number 10, you must confess the desire for your gratitude, your zeal, your service to God to be restored. The blessedness of being forgiven leads a person to desire for others the same spiritual blessing. In verse 13 and 15, David says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways as our head of our catechism says once you are delivered from your misery then your whole life is an expression of service and gratitude to the Lord dear brothers and sisters denying the sins that we have and that we commit deprive us or deprives us from a precious privilege the privilege of being forgiven, of experiencing forgiveness time after time by the Lord. When we confess our sins, we not only experience forgiveness, we also experience cleansing. And this is our last practical point, the benefit of confessing your sin. You not only experience constant forgiveness, but you are cleansed more and more and more from your sin. That's what we find at the end of verse 9. 
Have you ever thought about this? That a way through which you can get cleansed of your sin is by constant confession of it? I'm believing, friend, first of all, the confession of which John speaks is not the kind of confession by which the natural conscience seeks a frequent lightening of its burden of guilt. John is not speaking about a lessening of guilty fears. No. This is a forgiveness that seeks full assurance and full forgiveness of sin. This is not a confession that can be turned into one more of your religious rituals. No. This confession, this confession is one that should aim for a total, total forgiveness and cleansing. So, unbeliever, if you hope that by confessing your sins you can release or relieve your guilty conscience, that won't happen. Your confession needs to be made in true and full repentance and needs to aim to full salvation, to full assurance. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 6. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not blame for iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. While I held my peace, my bones grew old in my groaning all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My greenness is turned into the drought of summer. I declared my sin to thee, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every saint pray unto thee in the time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the flood of many waters this shall not come. And to him, the kind of confession that you need to aim at, dear unbeliever, is one that keeps you safe from the day in which you have to face a holy, holy, holy God, that the fire of the flames may not reach you, as the waters here to David. If the hand of God is heavy upon your soul, go to God. Through Jesus Christ. Go and find forgiveness. These are the words of Jesus. Come to me. All ye that labor. And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. What is the result. Of our confession. He is faithful to forgive. And cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. Unbelieving friend. And again, believing brother and sister, take up the practice of confession. Yet, if you forget to confess a sin you have committed, do not torment yourself as Luther, who went to the confessional almost every five minutes. The, the, the encouragement and exhortation here is not to turn you into a morbid, sort of person who is confessing minute after minute. The exhortation here is 
believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the testimony of God's word about your sinfulness. Admit that you are a sinner and trust in God for him to forgive you and cleanse you. Thus, you will understand that absolute freedom and healing does not come when you forgive one who offends you, but rather when you, are, when you have been forgiven by the God whom you have offended with your sin. And if the Holy Spirit brings sins before you, confess them, but confess them in confidence that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to clean us. Amen. Heavenly Father, how holy and pure you are, and how perfect the standard of your law. How easy we can fall into desperation just by trying to match that tremendously holy standard of your law. But we thank you that there was a man who fulfilled and who lived out that beautiful and high standard. We thank thee because there was a man who fulfilled any single of your commandments. There was a man who took the place of us sinners at the cross. Jesus Christ. We thank thee because on account of his life and his death, we can find boldness to come before thee, to confess our sins with the hope and the confidence that they will be forgiven, that we will be cleansed and that our communion with you, with your spirit, with your Christ and with your church will be restored, fully restored. We thank thee, God, for this word, and we pray that it may bring blessing to our lives today and in the days ahead of us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.